Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Pat Mitchell-Worley of Bill Street Caravan, and I am sitting here at Diddy TV with the one and only Pat Rayner. Hello, Pat. Hi, Pat. So, Pat and Pat together again. That's us. Now, I, I have to say that the first time we met, you've got quite this history in Memphis music. I've been in Memphis music for a couple of decades, but believe it or not, we didn't meet until like maybe seven, eight years ago. Something like that. And it was a pool party at yeah. Karen Carrier's house. I and remember. she was just like, You guys don't know each other? You've got to meet. And then after I learned everything that you'd done, I was just like, How did I not know this woman? You know? I understand. I, I, I wonder that myself sometimes about certain people that. It seems like it should be obvious that we would be in each other's orbit or we would know each other, but not. Memphis is a very small universe, and um, I've been, uh, after that date, we ran into each other over and over again. We see each other at all kinds of events. Yes. And um, you have a very exciting event coming up. I do. Um, You have an exhibit that's going to be in the Stax Museum of American Soul Music. And it is, wait, give the name because it's so super cool. (laughs) It's called Chaos in the Cosmos. And that was really an idea of one of my friends, longtime friends, Jim and Jill Lancaster. We were, I was asking them if they could give me some ideas because I couldn't think of anything, you know, (laughs) except for World Boogie is Coming or stuff that was so obvious. And and Jill just says, well, I think you should call it Chaos and the Cosmos. I went. Sounds good. That's so perfect. Yeah. So the exhibit itself, is, it focuses in on a specific time frame in Memphis music. Right. We sort of happened to, I started really shooting fo- photos seriously around 1977, right about the time Elvis died. That sort of seemed to be a, a watermark kind of period for when things were not going well for Memphis after that point. You know, Elvis died, Stax went under, Beale Street was boarded up. I mean, it was just not a good time. All the major record labels left. But there were still a gang of us here who were committed to making music. And, I mean, it's like Mudboy and the Neutrons and uh, Jim Dickinson and that whole crew, uh, along with uh, John Fry and Knox down at... Son and John at Arden and Big Star and stuff, you know, we were still here and we were actively always trying to make music and preserve the past, look forward to the future. And, you know, it was a a great time because we were a true community then of 
sort of guerrilla warriors who banded together to support one another and help each other. And, you know, it was, uh, it was even though it was not a, a well-known period for a lot of reasons in music in this town at that time, um, it's now seen a big renaissance, you know, where Big mm -hmm. Star is the, the greatest thing that ever was, and people uh, have discovered Panther Burns and Mudboy and the Neutrons and just so many, all the blues artists, Furry Lewis, and and all the people that we worked with, the Johnny Woods, and, you know, it was just, it's a kick now to be sitting here thinking about all these projects that I worked on during that time yeah. are now all being reissued by Omnivore. And so, and you work with Omnivore, so you've got um, this firsthand story of what happened. It's, um, as you mentioned, sort of interesting when you look at a band like Big Star and you've got video, you've got, <laughs> you've got pictures. I do. And, and it's like, wait, wait, as people are so hungry for more and you've got this little treasure chest of more. Right. I mean, one of the things I had the most fun with was the reissue of the Beale Street Saturday Night record mm -hmm. because I was Jim's production assistant for the project. I shot video and photographs for the project and to now have been able to go back, restore all of those uh, tapes, put together a, a package that's expanded with beautiful photos and lots of great liner notes. It's it's a dream. Well, tell everybody what Bill Street Saturday Night, what the whole concept behind it and the reissue and everything that's happened. You know, clue everybody in on that. It's a really great, yeah, a great record. Bill <laughs> Street Saturday Night was Dickinson's concept album to put together a walking history of Bill Street, and he interviewed and recorded as many musicians as he could find who were still alive, who had been around at that time, or who still performed music of that time. And we put the whole record together to give to the Memphis Development Foundation, who were the people who were restoring the Orpheum. Mm -hmm. So th that was the first sort of real effort, I think, to try to get Beale Street back, was to restore the Orpheum and not let that place just fade away. And, uh, you know, on that record is Fred Ford and Phineas Newbern Jr. and Grandma Dixie Davis and Furry Lewis and Teeny Hodges and Thomas Pinkston and Sleepy John Estes. And, you know, it's, it's just unbelievable. And we just kind of walk up the street while a couple of the, while Thomas Pinkston and Furry Lewis, who were alive and playing on Beale Street back in the day, would tell stories about that and then that kind of fades into music and then it comes back to a narrative and it's got a beautiful cover photo on it by William Eggleston and um, I'm just super thrilled that we got to redo that and then that spawned a concert series that we did at the Orpheum which was called Beale Street Saturday Night The Music That Changed the World and we did three separate concerts. We did a Red Hot and Blue Rockabilly Review and then we did a blues night, which we call Beale Street Saturday Night on Sunday because all the concerts were on Sunday. <laughs> and then the last one was uh, Mud Boy and the Neutrons, the Tennessee Waltz, which was their take on the last waltz by the band. That was supposed to be their farewell performance. Thank goodness it wasn't. It wasn't. <laughs>
So the concept of the farewell performance, it continues these days. Yes, it's, <laughs> it's something that people have picked up on, I think. Well, there, um, for the person that is the, the music fan, everything about that release is for the person who has an appetite to just, oh my goodness, the Thomas Pinkston, the Fred Ford. Fred Ford is one of those names that if you know, really dig into Memphis music, right. Fred Ford is familiar to you, but you really have to be a fan of jazz and mm -hmm. really to know his name. And then the Eggleston cover, I mean, William Eggleston is considered by any photographer to be groundbreaking, to be the man that changed color photography. So everything about that release mm -hmm. makes it a collector's item. Well, Eggleston was always a part of our group, a willing participant, uh, a contributor. He contributed photos to all the big star projects. And, you know, he was just one of the you know the group of people that were still here trying to make the music make the art you know and struggle to do it but you know we supported one another so let's let's go back in time you got your start in the music industry in in a very unconventional way <laughs> you were you were the president of a fan club but not just any fan club right. so Tell us about it, and tell us how did that happen? Um, when I first saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, it just it immediately changed my life, and I, I was so totally blown away by them that I thought, how do I connect with them? How do I become involved with them? So I sent a telegram to England. I'm 14, and I asked them if I could start a fan club for the Beatles in America, and they wrote me back and said, they had a fan club set up, but I could certainly do a chapter in Memphis. And they sent me a certificate that was like a charter for the fan club. And Brian Epstein did the coolest thing. He set up a deal with Capitol Records where we got uh, all of their new releases ahead of time. We would get promotional copies of all their records ahead of time. I mean, I can remember driving down the Highland Strip with Sgt. Pepper in my in my lap while, you know, it was like not coming out for another week or something. Oh, wow. You know, and I would go up to Poplar Tunes and I'd go, check hey, it out, guys. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. That, the, the access, first of all, to artists, you know, in a world, that, the world that we live in now, that we have social media, and, you know, people feel like it's so easy to reach out to an artist. But back then, it took a few more steps. And... It was all, but it was always, you know, people were open yeah. to a fan, just yeah. a fan. Back then it was, it was different. And I, I will say that I probably made, well, I won't say regular, but I, ma I made frequent trips to the World Newsstand to buy magazines and newspapers from L.A., New York, and England to see what bands were playing where, or read yeah. articles about concert reviews and stuff like that, and... You know, that's how I sort of kept abreast of what was going on in the absence of the Internet. So what, how did that experience change your worldview? I mean, this wasn't a band that was just right down the street that you could go see them in their garage and right. watch them play their first show. You were watching them as the rest of the world did. Right. So how did that affect how you saw the rest of this planet? 
Wow. Um, it was just always amazing to me because, again, I would go buy every magazine and newspaper I could, and we had some publications coming to us from England, and, you know, the fact that you could see them traveling to Japan and all over Europe and to, you know, down to Australia and whatever, and everywhere they went, it was the same phenomenon, and it was like nothing anyone had ever seen before. Screaming girls. and <laughs> Crazy, 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 crazy. But, you know, uh, I guess then that sort of morphed into me becoming interested in local music. Mm -hmm. And when I started coming downtown on Saturdays and going to Levy's Attic and going to CGK at the place and discovering local bands, then I kind of was similarly smitten with the Gentries. Mm -hmm. And when I sort of thought about it, I'm going, well, these guys live in my hometown. They're really fantastic. They've got a record deal. I'm going to start a fan club for them. So I did. And Larry and I are still good, the best of friends. And that opened up a whole nother world also mm -hmm. for you. Um, with, with the Gentries, you were an instrumental piece for them getting the brass note on Beale Street. And it was, it was great to be at that ceremony and to see all the guys together with their families. And it's not like they've never received recognition right, before. Right, but that was special. It was so special, and you that could tell so they were so happy to be there, and the people hugging each other. It was such a reunion, yeah. and it was very moving. It was very moving. It was fantastic. You know, and the fact that they asked me to, to speak on their behalf at that ceremony was, was really an honor, you know. Well, moving, you know, you moved past that. You went, you chose to go to school in Memphis. I did. You stayed in Memphis. I you did. could have gone anywhere else, but you stayed in Memphis. I did. And so what What kind of influence did the music have on you staying in Memphis for college? Well, you know, I really hadn't really thought about it at that point. It was just probably a more economic thing for me yeah. because I was offered a scholarship at Memphis State, and I was glad to stay here because it seemed like the reasonable thing to do, you know, and I was happy here, so I stayed here, and, you know, it was a good thing I did because uh, God knows what would have happened if I had gone away to a different school, but I, I loved it here, so I stayed. So you went from the, the, the young girl who's running the fan club to the 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 student who is taking photos and video to actually being behind the board and mixing and engineering. Crazy, is it not? That is like quite a jump. I can just remember at one point when Alex <laughs> when Alex Chilton was getting ready to embark on his first solo project um, after Big Star and Richard Roseborough had sort of been giving me some instruction in the studio on how to do some engineering. And I don't know what gave me the uh, the idea that I could do it, but I said, Alex, how about if I engineer the record? And he went, okay. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it, that was just, wow. It's like, it, it's still surreal to me, honestly, in a way. You know, it's like at that point in time, I was... Um, grad assistant at Memphis State, and I was working on this 
one specific course about Memphis music with Robert Palmer, who was a music mm -hmm. critic at the New York Times. And he, he and I kind of mapped out the dates he could get down to Memphis, and then the other dates he couldn't, the, I had to teach the class. And one of the classes that I did, I took the whole class down to Phillips Recording, and we listened to playbacks of Alex's record. Oh, wow. Do you, do you still talk to any of those students? Do you? <laughs> I talked to George Laramore. I know George. <laughs> uh, Jim Darby. Uh, well, see, George went on to work for Entertainment Tonight, so you my, must have had some kind was, of influence He was on my him. prize student. He was, <laughs> he was the best. And, uh, you know, the other things that we did I thought that were outstanding in that class was I brought into the classroom Furry Lewis, Phineas Newbern, Jr., Mudboy and the Neutrons, and then we assembled a panel of music people, uh, George Klein, Knox Phillips, you know, um, and had what we called uh, a conversation about the state of music in Memphis. Oh, wow. With Jim? Uh, <laughs> uh -huh. Jim Dickinson was yep. always a voice of hope, but cynicism. <laughs> yeah, well... It was it was the truth, though. But it was the truth, you know. Um, well, there is, at the University of Memphis today, they have a great music business program, and they still do those things. They still bring artists in. And it's interesting that our community is, you know, when people talk about Memphis, it's, it's a it's a hometown. Yeah, you know, uh, there's one degree of separation between everyone here, and it's awesome when you can go to. As I used to say, I, I would shop at at um, Whole Foods, and Isaac Hayes was shopping, or you would go to a restaurant and you would see Sam Phillips, or you could, you know, it's not like there's this separation between our creative artists and everyday people, and so. With that, as a college student, you do have access to people who have great stories to sell and who were influential in history as far as music goes. And that, that's pretty exciting yeah. for a student. I can't imagine that that wouldn't make you want to be a part of the music industry. Well, you know, it just seemed to be a natural progression for me. You know, it was never really something I sort of thought about and had a game plan or some kind of actual, you know, I'm going to do this and then I'm going to do this. It just, things just kind of fell into place and happened, you know. Mm -hmm. So for you and, and your next step, I mean, did you ever plan on having an exhibit and much less at the Stacks Museum? <laughs> I, I did. I did think about it from time to time. A lot of times people would say you should have a show, you should do this. I don't know why I never really did. Um, it just seemed that, again, this time it just kind of all fell together. But from David Leonard introducing me to Tim Sampson at Stax, who then set up a meeting with Jeff Coleth, and then Robert Gordon, I asked Robert to come along because I was working on his new book with him, and I had some photos in the book. And then it said, well, we should do this, and we should have a like a opening and a book signing and do everything together. And that was about a year ago. Yeah, I think I would be remiss if I didn't mention the book signing that's taking place with your right. exhibit opening. Robert Gordon is one of those guys that you see at a restaurant in Memphis or you see at the grocery store, but he knows the history of Memphis music and his books have been, I mean, 
it came from Memphis was my first dive really into the music history right. beyond my, you know, my years. What is this really, you know? Yeah, what happened before? And what happened beyond that wasn't just um, the story of Elvis or the, the, the big names. What was the behind the scenes? Who were the bands that were influencing the greats right. and everything? And, and he was, you know, the first voice that gave me that um, the opportunity to see that. And his books have been heralded as, you know, Memphis music stories that everyone wants to read. It's true, you know, and let's not forget that he's won uh, an Emmy for his documentary about William Buckley, and he's won a Grammy for the liner notes he wrote for the Big Star Third album. I mean... I, I, we were all there. He didn't come that year. We were all at the ceremony, and when they announced his name, I called him, and I said, Robert, we won! We won! And he went, what? Wait, what? What happened? I'm going, you won the Grammy! And he he probably wasn't even watching the no. show. Pre-telecast thing, you know, nobody really ever bothers to watch that stuff, but wow, that was that was a thrill. So what do you think in looking at Memphis music today and having, you know, some decades under your belt of watching the evolution of music, watching the individuals who have um, who've sort of laid the path for us, what do you think is the most exciting thing about what's happening in Memphis and really this region? I'm excited by, by what I see happening at Sam Phillips Recording. Mm-hmm. with Judd Phillips taking over and having some really good people working for him with Matt Ross Spring in there producing and mixing and Jeff Powell doing mastering and doing renovations in the studio and wow, you know, and then I'm I'm always excited about anything that goes on at Royal. I mean, honestly, when I saw that live performance of Take Me to the River and I was in California, I was so proud to be a Memphian, I did not know what to do. Mm-hmm. It was those young kids from the Stax Academy with all of the old guard with Flick and Charles Hodges and wow, it was uh, Bobby Rush and William Bell. And I was like, how cool is it to be from Memphis? Yeah. There's, um, there is a sense now, there's some, you know, you can see it in a lot of the programs. We have a lot of music programs in the city right now, and the Stax Music Academy probably being the, the most recognized mm-hmm. and, and as far as standards go, they're at, they're at the top, you know. And it's interesting to see this embracing of the music legacy, but in a way that pushes the artists, okay, now go make your mark. Now go let them hear your voice and everything. So that I, I can imagine that that's yeah. exciting. <laughs> Every time I've been at the museum this week putting up the exhibit, there'll be film or audio playing somewhere, and I'll hear a voice, and I'll go look at it, and it's, it's a 17-year-old uh, who's a member of the Stax Academy, and they're phenomenal. You know, the talent in this town is undeniable. So what is it? What is it about Memphis? People ask that question. They ask me that all the time, and they say, "What? Why? Why are there so many talented people in in the musicians, the 
the songwriters, even the the creative staff as far as um, filmmaking, we've just got some really groundbreaking yeah, we do. people from here. But when you come here, there's no, there's no, like, I guess, glitz and glamour. No, there's no Nashville scene. (laughs) There's no big star-making machinery here. So I think people who are here are here because they, I guess they just feel at home here and they want to express themselves and you can feel free to be more creative here, I think. Mm -hmm. You know, the other two things I'm really excited about and Pardon me while I go off on my tangent of of saying that (laughs) Luther and Cody Dickinson and Lucero are my two favorite bands right now. It's like I cannot even express how how much I admire what they've done. They've put in all of their time on the road working tirelessly to make their own music, to be their own. Uh, their own people they're not like selling out to anybody and it's like god bless them i just i'm so proud of those boys they're just the most that's just to me that's like everything we did to recognize the past and look forward to the future and these boys are carrying it on and that really does make me so proud well for you in in hindsight and um all of these amazing personalities that you've you know worked with and had the pleasure of being friends with over the years from Jim Dickinson, Sid Selvage, John Fry, you know so many distinct personalities and in fact I always say Memphis is full of characters. Oh, we we have are. a lot of characters here. We are. And um of all of them, who do you think oh. <laughs> Who do I think you know, what? That you learned the best life lesson from that you still think about, maybe even laugh to yourself. Jim, Jim, (laughs) it's like he taught me what production is. And when I saw my whole photo exhibit come together and all of this band of people helping me, Jim would have said, that's production. Hmm. To him, it was rattling the change in his pockets. But (laughs) yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, he, you know, Jim hands down well it is um jim is quite the i'm gonna tell you my jim dickinson story okay um just because being in memphis music there's no way that you don't know especially if you're if you're in the rock and roll and blues world that jim dickinson is like you knew who jim dickinson was it was like this guy was just like ah he's on the mountaintop which he never wanted to be on and (laughs) and everything and i was in the studio um with him at kiva which is which became House of Blues right. and um, it was a band. I knew the band. They were from North Carolina. They said, "Oh, come in the studio." And and um, as a music writer, I did not like going in the studio with bands. I'm like, make the cake and let me have it. I don't want to see it being made, you know. But this one time, I'll go because it's Jim Dickinson. And he's mixing the record. Right. And it was the most boring experience I've ever... I mean, it was just like, how many times can they listen to those two seconds? But I was so embarrassed and afraid to say that I was going to leave that I sat there for hours. Yeah. <laughs> because it was Jim Dickinson. <laughs> and then finally I gave up and I told him that story, you know, maybe 20 years later. Right. And he thought it was the funniest thing he ever I'm heard. sure he did. I'm <laughs> he sure he did. He was like, you should have just left. 
that's the most boring process. Why didn't you leave? And I go, I didn't know. I was young. And you had, you know, I, I mean, it's hard not to right. know that you're in the shadow of these people because they did such amazing things. So I still, to this day, laugh at that story. So I was not shocked at all when you said Jim Dickinson. Yeah. It's a no-brainer, really. <laughs> Well, thank you for taking the time to sit down and chat with us. And I'm excited because this is our uh, Diddy TV Bill Street Caravan collab. So Fantastic. this interview will be on both. That's that's pretty exciting for me because I'm used to, you know, I have a face for radio. So, <laughs> so I'm excited about this. That's cool. That's totally cool. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming in and sitting down and chatting with us. My pleasure. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.